two no baller i am chris rawl it is wednesday july 7th on today's show in a battle of two long-suffering franchises phoenix suns take game one of the nba finals against the milwaukee bucks before we get there we will start in the place that no baller always starts one reason why gambling should be legal in the state of utah so i had a wide variety of bets out on last night's game one the one that I will concentrate on is Chris Paul over nine and a half assists, which Chris Paul played a fantastic game. I'm going to get into that a lot more on the other side of our ad. For this individual bet, he's sitting on nine assists. There's under a minute to go. The game has been decided. Everybody else is probably kind of checked out, and I'm on pins and needles because I need one more assist to hit my bet. He throws it over to Devin Booker, who takes the three with 40-some-odd seconds to go on the clock. It means nothing to virtually everybody on planet Earth. The total has been decided. The spread is decided. My assist bet still hangs in the balance. Devin Booker clanks it. I put my head in my hands. No, this can't be. Then I come to accept it. I go, you know, this is just the way of the world. I'll be better in game two. Uh, and it gives me another great reminder why gambling should be legal in Utah because it will always provide you with the most exciting moment in a blowout. And now, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. This year's NBA Finals between the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks is a battle between two long-suffering franchises and, in some cases, players. Very compelling storyline for someone like me who loves uh, tracing the emotional aspect of sports who loves uh, understanding and being a part of, in some cases, uh, the fan component, where you watch your team for years or decades or sometimes your entire life, and you don't see them win a championship. But every year there's hope, and every year maybe your team could be the one that breaks through. Part of sports that I really love, that I've talked about so many times on this show, and I like, even when my teams aren't involved, I like seeing that in other fan bases and teams. So we have the Suns and the Bucks. Two teams that fit that bill. The Bucks have won one NBA championship in their existence. It was in 1971, very, very long time ago. Sure, the vast majority of their fans either were not alive for that, or if they were, probably don't remember a lot about it. Uh, their best player is Giannis Antetokounmpo, who, while still young, is a two-time MVP that has started to take a lot of the blame in the public eye and from the media as to why Milwaukee has been coming up short in the playoffs. A lot of that I believe to be unfair, but it still exists. On the other side of the court, the Phoenix Suns, who have never won an NBA championship in their existence as a franchise. Uh, they have not made the playoffs until this season since 2010. Two years ago, they were dead last in the Western Conference at 19-63. and 63. Pretty cool stories on both sides when it comes to this specific aspect of sports and following a team and the emotional investment that comes from fans. Uh, just you wait forever and ever, it seems like, for a year like this, where one of those teams is, is going to be a champion 
and all of the past heartbreak is going to be worth it because you'll have that one moment where you go, ah, in 2021, they broke through and I'll never forget that. Uh, on the Phoenix Sun side, Chris Paul. Now in his 16th NBA season, never won a championship despite being one of the very best players of his generation and one of the best players that I've you know, had the privilege of watching as an NBA fan. All of these things are coming together and it creates a very compelling uh, viewing aspect for me because that's the kind of stuff that I love. I love high-level basketball, which we're going to get. We got last night, uh, but I love when you understand the stakes and you understand the emotional component of a series. So to reiterate this, I want to read a quote from John Hollinger of The Athletic about the Suns specifically. They've only lost in the finals twice, but the Suns have had innumerable seasons where they entered the playoffs seeming like perhaps the best team, or at the very least on the short list, only to falter in the conference finals or semis. It happened four times in the Steve Nash era, twice in the Charles Barkley era, twice in the Kevin Johnson, Tom Chambers era, and three times in the Paul Westfall, Walter Davis era. Overall, you could make a strong case they've had 13 teams in the last 46 years that were at least plausible champions, but the Suns have never won. There was always a nosebleed or suspension or weird coaching decision or a Mario Ellie shot that got in the way, end quote. So it's stuff like this that makes me always talk about the themes that I do, that a lot of teams that are capable of winning do not win continually. And sometimes you can span nearly half a century and have a lot of shots at it. You know, in this case, 13 different teams that Phoenix has where, yeah, you can make a case this is a short list title contender and they have zero championships. It's just really hard to win. There's only one team that wins every year. That's something that I always go back to over and over. And if you draw the short end of the stick time and again, you can go a long period without winning a championship. So now the Suns are in this position again. Uh, And the game last night, it really tied into the theme of the episode I recorded yesterday. The infinite avenues to success. And the different ways you can build a championship contender. For the Phoenix Suns, that is the mid-range. An area that has kind of been pushed aside in recent NBA because it's not the favorite shot of analytics nerds. And most NBA teams have really concentrated on two areas, getting into the paint, into the restricted area, and shooting three-pointers. Statistically speaking, those are the two areas that you want to be in. And the mid-range has kind of been pushed aside after a very long time in the sun. Uh, Michael Jordan and that era kind of ushers in the isolation scorer who lives in the mid-range and doesn't necessarily shoot it at a reasonable percentage, but that's what basketball was for 20-some-odd years, and we've shifted away from that. Uh, And it's not to say that analytics people don't think there's a time and a place for the mid-range, because if you shoot it at a high clip, then there's always a place for literally any shot. Uh, something that I think kind of gets forgotten within the whole analytics whirlwind and the arguments that happen on both sides. So last night, the Suns beat the Bucks by 13, 118-105. And I watched the game, and the story of it for me is the unstoppable guard combination of Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Two people who have really embraced this idea of their infinite avenues to success. 
uh, to people who go contrary to the conventional wisdom in 2021, that you need to stay out of the mid-range. These are two people who have really embraced it. Uh, This is where I'm going to live. In Chris Paul's case, he's made an entire career off of, I am going to live in the mid-range, and I'm going to shoot it at a clip that is about as good as anybody in the history of the NBA. This is our feeding ground. And so NBA defense, uh, like we saw with the Bucks last night, they're structured to try and force teams into that area. They want to defend the paint. They want to defend corner threes or threes in general. But it's usually those areas that defenses stress, we don't want to give up shots there. Keep them away from the rim. Keep them away from the corners. So a defense that's pushing the opposition into the mid-range, if it's a team like the Suns, they go, oh, okay, we're completely fine doing that because we have two assassins in that area. So I talk about Chris Paul and the way that he has built his entire career off of this very shot. And we saw that last night, and we've seen that for 16 years. I want to read something from Kurt Goldsberry of ESPN that ties into this very subject. No point guard in the history of the game can match Paul's ability to turn pick-and-roll plays into mid-range buckets. Not Steve Nash, not Stephen Curry, not Kyrie Irving. Once Paul gets going downhill off a screen, defenses might be able to take away his passing lanes or they might be able to take away his pull-up jumper, but rarely can they do both. When they yield the mid-range look to him, chances are it's a bucket. Paul shot 51.6% from mid-range this season, tied for the third highest by any player over the past 25 seasons, with a minimum of 350 field goal attempts. The only players who outdid Paul were Dirk Nowitzki and Kevin Durant. Those guys are both a foot taller and rightfully regarded as among the best shooters ever. Paul is one of the smallest rotation players in the league, which makes his mid-range numbers even more impressive. End quote. So we're seeing a resurgence in the appreciation for Chris Paul's game. Uh, And I myself am part of that. I loved, loved, loved him when he came into the league with the Hornets. He was one of my very favorite players to watch in basketball. And he went to Clippers and Lob City, and that act grew old. Um, Just the constant bitching, uh, the flopping, all that kind of stuff. Him and Blake and DeAndre and Doc Rivers on the sidelines. uh, I think a lot of people were turned off by that. And so I kind of grew to detest that team, and Paul was part of that. And now this late career resurgence, especially the Oklahoma City season, uh, it really kind of looped me back to the beginning where I refound that appreciation and that love for his game. And I went, man, this guy is a hell of a competitor. And I just love the way that he controls a basketball game, Uh, getting into this mid-range area. And as Goldsberry is saying, it's almost impossible for a defense to defend the two things that Paul wants to do. Either shoot that mid-range jumper or open up passing lanes, and he's going to find it. He's a basketball robot. And so the defense can usually take away one of those things, and Paul is more than capable and willing to, whatever you give me, that's what I'm going to embrace. And last night, we saw that kind of on both sides, you know, the mid-range and the passing. So Phoenix is, they're tapping into in game one, this game of cat and mouse, that traditionally NBA offenses uh, really embrace within the NBA playoffs. An interesting side note, you know, infinite avenues to success. The Suns, on the one hand, they're embracing the mid-range. Not a lot of teams are doing that in present day. On the other hand, they're saying, we're getting you into pick and rolls, and we're going to single out the defender that we think is 
the least equipped to guard what we're doing. And we're going to do that over and over and over. That is a traditional way of playing offense in the NBA. It's kind of a blend of these two approaches. So for the Suns, it's let's get Chris Paul and Booker into pick and roll. And how do we get, first and foremost, how do we get Brooke Lopez switched onto one of these people? And they attacked that relentlessly throughout the game when he was on the floor. Their big man, the dude who isn't necessarily comfortable coming out to the perimeter and trying to stay in front of one of these fantastic guards. And, and so they're roasting him over and over. And when he's off the floor, who's the next person that we go after? Uh, Bobby Portis. He got caught in the blender multiple times. And near the end of the third quarter, there's a stretch where Chris Paul just said, get him up here and he's going to be the one to guard me and I'm going to just burn his ass. Uh, hits a couple incredible threes, has a total blow by where Portis is just at a standstill and Paul's already on the other side of him. He's laying it up at the hoop. It was kind of the stretch that Phoenix really put a stranglehold on the game and put it away. When he was off the floor, it was seeking out Pat Connaughton or Bryn Forbes. Phoenix always found somebody that was on the floor that they were very comfortable bringing into a pick and roll, and Milwaukee didn't do anything to try to get away from it. And then these guards attacked it over and over and over. You saw it a little bit with campaign on the Phoenix side, but it was really Paul and Booker relentlessly going at the worst defender on Milwaukee. Uh, Booker, in the first half, he's always kind of a tone setter for Phoenix. And you know what you're getting on offense uh, pretty quickly. Is he going to be aggressive? Is he going to be somewhat passive? Last night, it was the aggressive side of Booker, which as soon as he does it, again, it sets the tone for Phoenix because they go, we know what we're getting from Paul. He's always going to orchestrate this pick and roll perfectly. If Booker is complimenting that or at times just seizing the reins, where you're really, really, really hard to stop on that side of the court. Uh, so he's there. He's confident attacking these switches. First half, he's got 16 points. He's 8 for 8 from the free throw line. Again, a really, really key side note. Uh, when he is attacking relentlessly and getting to the free throw line, it's really hard to defend what Phoenix is doing. You can take away the passing lanes, or you can try to take away uh, the scoring avenues, but you can't really do both against players of the caliber of Booker or Paul. For the game, he finishes with 27 points and 6 assists. He's 10 for 10 from the free throw line. Double-digit free throws, that's always key. He doesn't necessarily shoot a great percentage from the field. I believe he's 8 for 21, but it's just the aggressive mindset. It ties into what Phoenix wants and needs to do on the offensive side of the ball. Get people in the pick and roll. Get your worst defender out here. Attack, 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 attack. So Paul does that in game one as good as you can do it. Again, this is just... The career of Chris Paul, um, he's done it for teams over and over. He's always made them better. They've fallen short in the playoffs. And I think he's kind of carried that mantle as the player, the individual who we always want to carry the mantle for the team, which, again, I don't ever think is really fair. Um, but Paul has built a career on this. Uh, it's a dude who looked last night like he has been waiting his whole life to play in the NBA Finals and orchestrated this pick-and-roll offense to the very best of his abilities, which in turn means pretty much the best of anybody's abilities that plays basketball. He finishes the game with 32 points, 9 assists, 4 rebounds. He's 12 for 19 from the field. He's 4 for 7 from 3. In that third quarter, he finishes with 16 points in that quarter alone, uh, and that really, really, really comes to a head during that stretch I talked about with Bobby Portis out on the floor and bringing him up there and attacking. Paul just understands basketball in a way that almost nobody in the history of the game does. 
And he's always going to find that player in the way that we've seen the greats of the past do it on their way to winning championships. I always think of LeBron and he's just, he's in the same caliber of Paul as this basketball robot who understands the game of cat and mouse. Who's your worst defender? Get him up here, get him in a pick and roll, get him switched on to me. And now your defense is going to break down trying to stop what I'm doing. And I will either find a player who is wide open and they're going to shoot a three or I'm going to go and dunk at the basket or get fouled. Uh, LeBron has won four championships doing that. Last night, we see Paul take a step in that direction in a very similar manner. So Paul, he's part of that compelling storyline that I talk about at the start of this show. Uh, The aging star who is chasing his very first championship. A star who has been, again, about as good as a player can be over the course of his career for his position. Point guard, I'm not sure if I'd watched a better one in my life than Chris Paul. And he hasn't won a championship yet. He's 16 seasons in. And now we're seeing, we're seeing A, Chris Paul play with that sense of urgency, but also B, play with that measured, just incredible ability to control a game. You know, last night was the perfect blend of those two things. You sense that he knows this is probably his last chance at winning a championship. But he's also saying, all right, I can perform like I've always performed in this situation. Uh, we've seen the aging star perform in this and it's and it's really just it's really cool to watch as a fan and a viewer we've seen it with John Elway in football he wins second to last year with Denver he's been one of the best quarterbacks in football one of the best quarterbacks of all time but up until that point had fallen short fallen short um, and he ends up breaking through and winning a Super Bowl he wins one the next year he retires with two Super Bowls going out on top Ray Bork you know on my favorite team in hockey Colorado Avalanche I've talked about him on this show and Colorado Avalanche's Stanley Cup run in 2001, the last time that they won a cup. Uh, Ray Bork, he plays 22 years in the league. He's one of the best defensemen of all time in the history of the National Hockey League. Hadn't won a cup until that point. Goes to Colorado, and his final season, uh, he hoists it in Game 7 for Colorado. It's really cool stuff, and it creates these memories that you just you don't forget, and it ties into what I love about sports as a viewer, um, just being able to trace an entire arc of a player and of a team and going, I've watched Chris Paul's career every single step of the way when he came to the league with the, Pelic- or with the Hornets at the time, and I've watched every single year. Um, and if it comes to a head and he wins a championship this year, that's a really cool experience for just, A, a viewer who appreciates basketball and appreciates Paul, but B, uh, a fan of either that player or, in this case, a fan of the Phoenix Suns. Uh, so Chris Paul, he's just he's playing at a level that is about as good as we've seen him play, which is incredible when you consider that he's 36 years old. I want to read a tweet from Tom Haberstraw that ties into his last two games, both just masterful performances from Chris Paul. Chris Paul, over his last two games, has 73 points, 28 for 43 from the field, that's 65%. 11 for 15 from three, that's 73%. 17 assists that result in 41 points for his team and only two turnovers, uh, and, end quote. You're just seeing Chris Paul do what Chris Paul does. It's awesome, and I love it, and I hope we get more of it as this series goes on, uh, regardless of who wins, because there are limited amounts of time left that we get to watch uh, Chris Paul do what he does. So there's a third player that is really breaking out in these playoffs for the Suns uh, and turning this two-headed star guard combination 
into kind of a three-headed monster. Uh, he's not a guard, but it's DeAndre Ayton. Center, and he's emerging as just this do-everything, fill-every-gap style player um, in a way that I wasn't sure he could do going into these playoffs. I think a lot of people, myself included, thought that one of the weaknesses of the Suns team would be how is Aiton going to hold up against these high-level bigs? Is he going to be versatile enough to defend, to move around in these games of cat and mouse where he's the person trying to be singled out? And on offensive, is he going to be able to score and go about getting his buckets against these high-caliber playoff-level defenses? Uh, And is he going to be able to do these things against a variety of looks and players over the course of each individual playoff round? We've seen him do this uh, in a manner, again, that I didn't think he could do. And it's kind of changing my own perception of Aiton in real time. He goes against Anthony Davis in round one before he gets hurt, holds his own, then Andre Drummond. And he goes against Nikola Jokic in the next round, the MVP of the league, holds his own, goes against the LA Clippers in round three. Uh, And the small ball approach that ran Rudy Gobert and the Jazz out of the gym in the second round, uh, Aiton kind of eats that up. And he forces them to play Zubats when Zubats is available. And when he's not, Aiton just obliterates them on the glass and makes them pay for this approach in a way that uh, Gobert and the Jazz couldn't. And now last night, he's going against a, a different style of team with different players. A Milwaukee team that has a traditional big in Lopez and a very non-traditional big in Giannis. Two very different styles of, of play and players. And Aiton's now going against this. And again, last night, he just comes through. He's got 22 points. He's got 19 rebounds. He's 8 for 10 from the field. He's just this rebounding machine, regardless of who is on him, what style of play the other team is is equipped with and running with. Aiton is just chewing him up on the glass. It seems like nobody can stop him from going and getting rebounds, whether defensive or offensive. Um, he's just become this monster. And then on the defensive side, he holds his own against this versatile Bucks team. Uh, Aiton is really emerging as he's not a full-on star yet, but he's on this trajectory where I go, I wouldn't have thought this is possible going into these playoffs, but now I'm reassessing what I think of Aiton, a very young player who has tons of room to grow, and his trajectory uh, could end in that place, a star. Maybe. Uh, we're seeing a lot of encouraging signs for that player. For the team itself, for Phoenix... Last night in their win, it also shines a light on what I really love about this team, a team that understands on an individual level what the role of every player is. And they all go out and they don't try to overstep their bounds and they just do what they're asked to do at a very high level. Uh, It's a credit to management and coaching and just the players themselves for understanding that structure is key for a team. Um, And situation means a hell of a lot. You can accumulate talent, but if... Each person doesn't know their role and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It it doesn't mean as much, and it's going to be harder to win within the playoffs. This Phoenix team, it's that blend. It's the high-level stars on top. It's Paul. It's Booker. It's this emergence of Aiton, and it's complemented with depth, with these role players emerging, understanding what is needed from each and every one of them, and then going out and doing that. Last night, they have six players in double figures, the three stars, and it's complemented. Uh, by the the margins, by the the role players, by the people who were there to fill the gaps and who have done so for Phoenix through all first three series of these playoffs and last night in game one of the NBA Finals. 
Mikael Bridges plays nicely. He finishes with 14. Cam Johnson, who's become one of their most important players off the bench, he plays nicely. He finishes with 10 points. Campaign, their backup point guard, a dude who just seemed like he was on his way out of the league. He's now become this vital third guard, first man off the bench for Phoenix, uh, as far as guards are concerned. He contributes 10 points, and he ties in to that same philosophical approach that Phoenix has on offense. Pick and rolls, get the worst defender out here, and Payne attacks him with his speed. The team as a whole, fantastic free throw shooting team. I believe I saw a stat yesterday that they're shooting 87% going into last night's game one for the playoffs, which would be the highest in NBA history for a team uh, from the free throw line. Last night, they're 25 for 26. Their very last free throw when the game is already out of doubt, that's the one that's missed. Up until that point, absolutely perfect from the line. You're seeing one of the greatest strengths of this team flourish in game one. Um, that Everybody knows their role. This situation is perfect and it enables everybody to go out and just perform to the best of their strengths and cover up the weaknesses of those around them. So it's not that competitive of a game, um, but it was enjoyable and it also made me optimistic for the competitiveness of this series especially as a person who doesn't necessarily care who wins on either side. I think there are really cool ways that uh, you can consume this series and celebrate whoever wins. Um, but I want to see competitive basketball, and I'd love to see Game 6 and Game 7 between two teams that have really high stakes uh, and that have pasts as franchises that don't include a lot of winning. What makes me optimistic is the emergence of Giannis last night. A dude who, when he went down in the Atlanta series, I thought was done for the playoffs. I assumed that that was probably an ACL injury, and I think a lot of people felt similarly. And even if it wasn't, I didn't really understand how he could come back and play like Giannis normally plays in the playoffs. And he starts last night we're, um, after we don't really know if he's going to at any point until a couple hours before game time. Then right before game time, they go, yeah, he's ready to go. Uh, here we go. And he looks like Giannis athletically. I'm watching it and going, how the hell does he look like this after that hyperextension? I think Mark Jackson mentions that in the first quarter of the broadcast. He's flying around doing all the honest stuff that I love watching as a basketball fan. That bully ball approach that is incredibly skilled somehow. It's kind of an oxymoron, but Giannis can bully anybody in his path, but he has all these finishing moves in the Euro step and all that beautiful athletic grace that complements uh, just this physicality and this strength. First quarter, he's attacking. He has a blow by a Jay Crowder, and he's dunking uncontested. He has another one with Aiton, who's a strong dude in his own right, and he just puts his shoulder in him, moves him underneath the basket, and dunks. Um, two very different styles of defender, and Phoenix has a lot of them that they can throw at Giannis. Torrey Craig's another, uh, just different styles, uh, different versions of defensive players. And Giannis can just find a way against almost any approach. Um, he has a block of Mikkel Bridges near the end of the first half that is reminiscent of LeBron's block at the end of 2016 Game 7 Finals. I think that's also mentioned on the broadcast. Um, he tracks him down from his own three-point line. He's running full speed. He pins it against the backboard. And Giannis looked like Giannis. He finishes the game with 27 points, 17 rebounds, four assists, two steals, one block. A Giannis stat line. Um and one that makes me op optimistic for what Milwaukee can do within this series. Drew Holiday does not play nicely last night. I think Milwaukee was very slow to adjust on the coaching side to what Phoenix was bringing to the table on offense. 
And I think if you're Milwaukee, you go back to the drawing board and say, okay, Giannis is here and he's ready to go. Uh, we get a better compliment around him, you know, a little more from Middleton, from Holiday, and from these depth pieces. And we understand what we can do on defensively or defense a little bit more. And I think we're in business within the series and we can fight tooth and nail for the, the NBA championship. So that's game one. Um, the Suns, they're now three wins away from their very first NBA championship. Milwaukee on the other side, they remain four away from their first NBA championship since 1971. Uh, the stakes continue to rise. And game two awaits on Thursday night. And we will be back here on Friday to talk about everything that goes into it. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.